Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Luke, Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 10. This morning's message is uh, somewhat complicated. It is the first part of an incredible uh, vision and experience that an individual had as he was serving the Lord. It recounts the birth of John the Baptist foretold by the angel Gabriel. And if I had to entitle this first part of this story, it's simply faithfully serving God when life doesn't turn out like you want. Once again, it's faithfully serving God when life does not turn out like you want. Uh, I've had the, the pleasure of walking with many of you through some of the most difficult life experiences imaginable with parents, with children, you, you yourselves, with diseases, relationship issues, just life issues in general. And I know many of you growing up didn't think one day I would be in this spot. Maybe it's a second marriage, maybe it's a, a life debilitating disease that every moment of every day affects how you think. Maybe it was a tragedy. Whatever the case, the challenge is, Will you still continue in your faith? And not just in your faith, but faithfully serve in the Lord's house, being a part of his church, giving, using your, your gifts, walking alongside others. It's really easy to shrink away when bad stuff happens. And we see in the beginning of Luke an incredible story begin to unfold. We, were, we looked at verses 1 through uh, 4 last week, and in verse 4, Luke gives this account. He writes this, that we may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. So right after that statement, he goes into one of the most miraculous accounts in the New Testament, and he begins with this. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And that's where we're going to stop today. But we will be looking at a lot of different things. So I want you to hold your place there and turn back to Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Matthew chapter 2, you're going to be turning a lot in Scripture today. Because these five verses introduce a, a great number of issues. And I promised you last week that we'd be looking at maps. We would be looking at photos. Because I really hope that the book or the Gospel of Luke comes alive. And that maybe some of the issues you've just glossed over in the past as you've read through it and not thought about it, hopefully you can begin to kind of understand a little bit of the background and what's happening. So in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, this is where we are at when it comes to who is this individual 
by the name of Herod. If you're familiar with the story, Jesus is born. He, he leaves for Egypt because he's warned. And then this Herod that we were just introduced to in Luke does this. Verse 16, chapter 2, Matthew. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the mill children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This Herod, incredible wicked man, kills all these children in Bethlehem and in all the region, two years old and under. And many individuals, as they're reading that story, they're like, how in the world could that possibly happen? How in the world would one man do that? Why wouldn't the people rebel? It just seems so evil, so wicked. Well, who is this Herod? In your um, bulletin this morning, you have a little chart of all the Herods that are in the Bible and some that aren't. And you'll notice there is a bunch of Herods. So very first off, you have to understand who is this Herod, king of Judea? Well, Herod is often called Herod the Great. On the slide behind me, you will see this is Herodium. Herodium is about 3.1 miles southeast of Bethlehem. Very important because Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This is the area in which you just read in Matthew, there was this huge slaughter that took place. Not only that, but it was about seven and a half miles south of Jerusalem. So map-wise, it looks simply like this. On the left-hand side, you see the word Israel in red. The, the line to the right of Israel in red is the boundary line for modern-day Israel. To the right of that line, still in green, is what is called the West Bank. So this has both the ancient landmarks and cities as well as the modern boundary lines. So you can see a lot of the biblical names maybe that you're familiar with are actually on the West Bank, starting at the top, Samaria, Shechem, uh, Jericho, Mount of Olives, uh, Hebron. All of these major landmarks are on the West Bank today. But you'll notice in black, you have Jerusalem, then you have Bethlehem, and then you have Herodium. Once again, Herodium is this big hill. It's just in this region. And it just looks like a hill from what you can tell from this point of view. But the black arrow is pointing to something very special that was discovered just in the past decades. It is the tomb of Herod the Great, the Herod that was just mentioned. As a matter of fact, when I was in Israel and took these photos, it was just a few years ago, it was the first major exhibit on Herod the Great in the history of Israel. All the antiquities, all the discoveries recently made supporting the historicity and the reality of who Herod the Great really was. And Herod the Great, what he did was he took this hill in that region and he made a palace and a fortress from it. This is from the top of that hill that you can see looking out. It is the highest landmark in the desert in that area. So Herod the Great not only was a ruler, but he was this incredible builder on the side of that hill, right um, below that tomb that you saw. This is an amphitheater, a Roman era amphitheater that seats over 600 people. That's just on the side of the hill, something to, that Herod used for his own personal entertainment. When you look down into the hill, this is what you see, this entire miniature city. There is a synagogue there. There are uh, 
uh, there was a foundry, there are houses, there are places of worship, places of administration. So this Herod the Great was truly great in the sense that he was this incredibly powerful builder. He was a smart tactician. He controlled the area of Judea in an incredible manner, unlike anything seen. 2,000 years later, this is the excavation of that synagogue. Seats several hundred people is classic first century synagogue. The steps around it, those aren't steps. That would be like stadium seating today. You don't see the roof because the roof has been uh, destroyed, but you can see the columns. This would be where they would worship, just like the modern-day church and the ancient church was developed along these lines. Not only that, you can see the steps going up and down, and uh, the, the black area to the right is a well or a cistern. So from that perspective, you have this hill, but within the hill, there's a palace and a fortress. But within the hill itself, you can see this, it's a little fuzzy. The, the, the tunnels that have been dug into that hill provide additional protection, but it's this amazing system of cisterns. As you can see, it was very, very dry. And so during the wet part of the year, they would collect these huge internal cisterns of water for drinking so they could sustain themselves for a great deal of time, both food and water. So that's the setting and the scene of Herod the Great. So when you come to the Gospels, you now understand this is just one of his building projects. He actually rebuilt and expanded the Temple Mounts that we're going to be talking about. He built Masada. He built other things in and around this area. So when we read in the Gospel of Matthew that Herod the Great issues this edict, you can understand that he wasn't just your typical ruler. Had he been, he probably couldn't have gotten away with it. But this is just two and a half miles from the very region. He has this incredible presence and authority, unlike any ruler that would come before or after him for many, many years. In God's perfect timing, he uses a very wicked ruler to bring about prophecy that was foretold. It's this incredible understanding of the rulers of the day. Not only the rulers, but we read, it is in the days of Herod, king of Judea, that there was a priest named Zechariah. So that's the leadership of the country. Those are the individuals that are, are, are leading, controlling the Temple Mount, controlling worship, what would you do? You're faithfully following God, and that's your leadership. On the one hand, everything according to the world, he's doing great. He, he's the greatest leader in many, many years. But on the other hand, we see that he was a very wicked man. Have you ever stopped going to church because everyone in the church you felt like was a sinner? Have you ever judged churches that way? You're like, everyone here is horrible. Why would I ever go to that church? Or maybe you've, you've judged the worship leader, the pastor, somewhat harshly. Maybe justly so. Who knows? But have you let it affect your own walk and faithfulness in your life? It's easy to do. It's super easy to do. 
Because you're looking around like, well, if this is how everyone else is going to behave, why should I do it? There's an incredible, powerful force when you're alone that you, you kind of get into that perspective of woe is me, no one else is doing it, why should I? And it's those times when you're alone, whether it's laying on your bed at night, whether it's sitting at home alone during a holiday, just like we had, you can begin saying, wow, that church isn't very friendly or making all sorts of judgments. But there's this incredible story that we're reading here of a guy by the name of Zachariah and his wife. So back to verse 5 in Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Well, what is a priest and what is this? It says, of the division of Abijah. Now I want to ask you to turn to a very popular book called First Chronicles. I know many of you just love it. You break it open in the evenings, read about it. First Chronicles chapter 24. So what's going on? As you're turning there, here's the, uh, the scene. Whether you know this or not, in the Old Testament, God begins to institutionalize a very specific kind of worship for his people. And it begins with the giving of the law and the tabernacle. And then ultimately, uh, David, King David, uh, gives and directs his son to build the temple, the temple that we're about to see in just a moment or a, a reflection of it. And as he builds this temple, God gives him direction on what should go on at the temple, all these different things and how it operates. And so David begins to organize under God's authority and inspiration. He breaks up a group of individuals, these priests, and these priests have different functions. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 7, uh, is where he begins. And he uses this method of a lot. A lot was just simply much like a coin. And we read in, in Proverbs, if you've been reading through Proverbs as we went through there, uh, the lot, man can cast the lot, but ultimately God is in charge. And they use this to determine the will of God. And they do it in Luke and they do it here. You don't see lot, lots cast after the book of Acts. For whatever reason, we now have direct access to God. We pray. They were praying in the Old Testament, but it was a common practice that God seemed to accept. In verse 7, it said, the lot fell to, and he begins to list a number of names. In verse 10, it says, the seventh to Hakaz, the eighth to Abijah. So Abijah was one of the individuals whom uh, it would be through his lineage, these individuals would serve as a part of the priesthood. Drop down to verse 19 in chapter 24, it says this. These had their appointed duty in their service to come into the house of Yahweh according to the procedure established by them by Aaron. Aaron was basically the head guy, uh, for a lack of a better term, uh, simplifying it. By Aaron, their father, as Yahweh God of Israel had commanded him. So uh, Zechariah, some thousand years later, David lived about a thousand BC. He was serving on the temple, Temple Mount, or at least his division was. And the lot fell to him to go in and offer incense. But before we go there, I want you, while you're in First Chronicles, go to chapter 25, verse 1. This becomes very important once again, helping you to understand the validity and the certainty 
that the book, book of Luke presents. Chapter 25, verse 1, it says, David and the chief priests of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Haman and of Judithum, who prophesied, notice this, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. So you had prophets who were prophesying musically. Have you ever read that before? So today, there's a real misunderstanding with prophecy, whether the gift of prophecy even still exists. But people most likely, if you talk to someone and ask them about what is prophecy, they would expect you to say, well, it's just simply the foretelling of a future event. And if the future event comes true, then you're considered a true prophet. But it wasn't just simply that. It wasn't just simply a guy making future predictions. Many of the prophets were calling the people back to God's law, but here they were prophesying with song, with musical instruments. Now, why is that so important? Well, it wasn't just a little bit. Drop down to chapter uh, 25, verse 6. It says, They were all under the direction of their father in the music in the house of Yahweh with cymbals, harps, Lears for the service of the house of God. So the Temple Mount was this incredibly musical, uh, just not only song-driven uh, experience, uh, it was songs, it was smells, it was prayer, it was this incredible picture. And then verse 7 says, the number of them, along with their brothers who were trained, notice this, they were actually trained in singing to Yahweh. All who were skillful was 288. And they cast lot for their duties, small and great, teacher and pupil alike. So they weren't all serving together at once, but there was training, there was this emphasis, and there was prophecy through song. Now, why does this matter? Well, turn back to Luke. Turn over to Luke chapter 1. We're going to skip forward just a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 67. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And says this, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and if your Bible is probably like mine, you'll notice the passage that follows is not printed in a normal narrative. It looks like either a, maybe a song or poetry. I'm suggesting it's both, and so do the most translators. Why is this important? Why have I went through the time to show you how the Old Testament, not only was Zechariah from this division of Abijah, but there was also a common practice of these individuals, whether it was the division of Abijah, but specifically others, that people would prophesy in song. Because most people don't understand that, number one, and number two is this. If you're reading in the New Testament the, the gospel account of the book of Luke, and you're reading along, and all of a sudden just this guy, he just prophesies this song off the top of his head. Does that kind of sound normal? No. How many of you, did, any, did that happen to you over Thanksgiving? 
Just going along. Oh, I'm going to prophesy a song. Is that happening normally in, in the New Testament? No, it's, it's, that's not happening in the New Testament. And it seems so unusual that some people have questioned the validity of the certainty of the book of Luke. They would say, in fact, many liberal scholars have written, this just doesn't happen. No, people don't just automatically built out this song as occurs multiple times in this account. And I'm suggesting to you, not only does it, but it was common. It should be expected. It is not an oddity. The book of Luke, inspired by God, presents an accurate story not only an accurate story historically within his own times that we've seen archaeologically, but biblically. All the account is normal. It is what was going on. And there's this incredible setting that if you begin to understand of the climax of God's plan of salvation for his people, we see it within history and we see it within Scripture. So let's go back to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Verse 6, speaking of Elizabeth and Zechariah, says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Have you ever tried that? I'm hoping you have. Not necessarily the Old Testament. Uh, we're no longer under the Old Covenant. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. But he gives lots of commands in the New Covenant. And the question is this, do you try that? Do you even feel like it's possible to obey God in all that he says and does? Here's the real crux of the challenge with this passage of Scripture. I know so many people who have put their faith in Jesus, yet they've struggled in walking with him. As they maybe sin or even are captured by sin in some way, they begin to question whether they really even believed in the first place. Or they begin to be captured by the feeling associated with the guilt of sin. And the idea that somehow they could read this and, and see this as attainable that calling themselves righteous before God and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes, that seems so unattainable to so many believers in Jesus. Because I've had a chance to talk with multiple people this past week and weeks past, and like, do you feel like you're righteous? Do you feel like you're being faithful to the Lord? And they're like, well, not really. Well, is it possible? Is, is Scripture lying here? Because it's making the claim that these individuals were blameless according to the law and righteous. Not only that, but if you know your Scriptures at all, looking back at some individuals, Genesis 6, 9, it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Job 1.8 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? 
That's Old Testament, New Testament, Philippians 3.6. This is Paul speaking of himself in his past history. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It seems to be possible. It's claimed over and over and over again. But do you feel that it is possible? Or are you walking around maybe with a feeling of defeat? It's really easy to become defeated. I challenged you when we began this message, like Zechariah, will you be faithful even when life doesn't turn out like you want? Sometimes life is about some sin in your life, challenges with your sin or the sin of others, and you get so beaten down, you remember maybe back when you trusted in Jesus, and it was so great. You understood and you you heard the promise that Jesus would wipe away all your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And it just felt so good at the time when you finally made that decision. And I pray that you have to confess your sins before God, to ask for forgiveness and to trust in him as Lord. Many people can look back and go, wow, that was such a great feeling. I ask him, why, why has that feeling changed? Let me submit two things to you before we go on in these verses and we finish it out for the day. Two things to suggest. Number one, most people don't actually know God's word, so they have no confidence that they're walking in God's word. And because they're not walking in God's word, they have no idea of the battle of, with sin, how it operates, and, and the tools that God has given believers to battle that sin. Because of that, they begin to operate based upon feelings. And again, God has wired us with feelings. Feelings are good, but feelings can flow from a multiple, just different things. They can flow from a good holiday, or they can flow from a good walk with the Lord. Here is some truth that the New Testament provides that might give you some insight on the idea of true righteousness and the ability to walk in righteousness for believers. Number one, Jude 24 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy. So it is Jesus who presents us blameless. It is not us. It is not a earning of righteousness. It is our Savior, the same Savior who washed us white as snow when we trusted in him, is the same Savior that we serve when we walk in him. John, or 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, perhaps puts this like no other passage in all of Scripture. And this is not a contradiction. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. 3.11 says, No one understands, no one seeks God. This is in reference to unbelievers, but to believers, whether it's Old Testament or New, 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 say this. This is the second aspect of why I believe people walk with a feeling of unrighteousness, like they're not worthy like they're defeated. John puts it very succinctly. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, in other words, if we live in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's not this idea of we're trying to live perfect, sinless lives. The the scriptures say, yes, you will sin, but here's the cool thing. Whether it was Old Testament walking with God or New Testament walking with God, there was a provision for sin. You don't have to let sin remain. The, The sin that you do commit, the guilt does not need to pile up. That's that's not the will of God. That's not what he desires for us to live full of guilt. His desire is this, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And most people know this verse, but they forget about this last part. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us all from all unrighteousness. So when you're in standing with God, walking with him, you're in constant relationship with him. And part of that relationship is a repentance and confession of sin. And you're made clean. It's wiped away. You are blameless, righteous before God, not because of anything you've done, but because the blood of his son covers you. The question is, is that how you're walking? If you're not walking like that, then you likely do have unconfessed sin. And that unconfessed sin probably makes you feel unrighteous. Two different perspectives. Romans says we're no longer under the power of sin. We have been set free. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's up to us to walk like that. And this is what Zechariah and Elizabeth were doing. They were walking with God. And they were doing so. And in this particular account, they had been doing so for years. Faithfully serving. And it's not just they were doing that, but let's turn back to Luke now. What were they doing? What was going on that seems so hard? Verse 7 says, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Why is this so important? Two people seeking after God their whole lives, yet they had this one major problem within their relationship, and you'll read in the coming weeks, within the whole community, because they were leaders and everyone was looking at them and they didn't have children. Back in the day, and, and, and scholars still don't understand why this was so important. There are a number of theories, but children, if you think children are important now, they were absolutely critical in that day and age. It says that essentially it implies later in the text that there was a reproach upon them. People thought that they had done something wrong. They were looking at them like, eh, I don't care what you're doing on the outside, you must have done something wrong because you don't have any kids. And they dealt with this all the way to the point 
that they're really probably, if you were just looking at it physically, there was no hope for them. But once again, later on in the text, it, it indicates they had continued to pray to God asking for a child. You have to ask yourself as you're reading these stories, would you have done the same? Would you have just hung it up and said, you know what? We've been serving the Lord all of our lives. Let's just call this good. I mean, after all, Zechariah, he is chosen by Lot. There were plenty of other individuals that, that could be serving. He, didn't, he wasn't critical to it. He probably had to have some other way of making a living because he was only serving just very rarely, even though he had the title. What would you have done? Well, he continues and he moves forward. It says this in verse 8. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. What in the world is this about? Well, here's what the temple looked like back in the day. This is a model. It's outside of the um, uh, Israel Antiquities Museum. Uh, this is the Temple Mount as it would be. This would be like looking from the Mount of Olives. So the Wailing Wall would be on the opposite side to the left is where the Wailing Wall would be. In the very middle, there's this square-looking building. That's the temple. In the outer courts is kind of the court of the Gentiles. There was an inner court and an outer court, and there were porticos along the side. So this is what the, that big square building looks like, an artist rendering inside. It was called the Holy of Holies. And so where Zachariah would be serving, he'd be the little guy standing there before the altar of incense. In the altar of incense, they were commanded, we don't have time this morning to look at it, they were commanded in Exodus and moving forward that they would burn grain offerings mixed with uh, various different things like frankincense, for instance, from the nativity story. This would be one of the offerings that they made every morning and every evening before the Lord. You would have the Holy of Holies behind that, this veil, the Ark of the Covenant, and this was all going on, and Zechariah alone was entering in, and he was offering the burnt offering on the altar of incense. It was a very special time. This is a little bit closer look. It's an artist's rendering. There are multiple uh, renderings that could have a little bit of uh, change to them, but it was a place to obviously start a fire, so there was a fire on top, and you were offering these burnt offerings. There were poles on the side in which you could carry it, um, essentially the altar of incense. But this is how the Temple Mount looks today, to give you a comparison. You can still see the wall. This is looking at from the same perspective. But you notice all the trees. It looks like a park today. Actually, it looks like a third world park. Uh, it's, it's not kept up very well. The building on top of the Temple Mount to the left is a mosque. It's one of many mosques that people don't even realize that are there. And then the other main mosque on the right. But as you go into the Temple Mount from the Wailing Wall, you look down, you can see it's very high. This is what you will likely see on the news most of the time when they refer to the Temple Mount. This is, there's a big walkway that gets up onto the Temple Mount. And as you exit that walkway coming on the Temple Mount, you can see this is that mosque that you can see from the, the distance. And it's this huge, huge area, very intimidating. So much so, again, it looks like a park, people strewn about. This is just 
almost a maze of trails that are going through there. It's this massive place. And finally, you make it to the middle, and you begin going up a, another flight of stairs. This wasn't original, uh, but you go up and you see the, the mosque that actually most scholars do not believe sits exactly where the temple was. From where I'm standing taking this picture to the right, there's this exit out the back. And where I'm standing right now is where some of the theories say the exact place of the Holy of Holies stood. This is the place that we're reading about right now. It exists, it's real. It exists today. Changes your perspective. So when we look back on it, you, this looks like a small scale, but you realize the immensity of how big this place was and how amazing it would be to walk into that, this singular purpose of worship of Yahweh. And it's one person out of all these people was chosen by lot to go in and enter in to the temple and to offer incense for all the nation of Israel. And that guy had to look around and decide, am I going to serve the Lord? Well, there was a lot of reasons for him not to. But what was amazing in verse 10, we read this, and we'll close. And it said, the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. It just is kind of thrown in there, doesn't really explain it, doesn't go any deeper into detail. But what was so beautiful is that sometimes we feel like we're alone walking with the Lord, but there are people that are faithful to the Lord. And there is this whole multitude, and you see on the Temple Mount now, and you see how big that was. I have no idea how large a crowd it was, but they were there, and Jesus calls his house a house of prayer, and they were praying. Today, after our worship service, we're going to be praying for a special time for a pastor search and different things. But I can tell you, over the years, it's hard to get people to gather together to pray. And yet this group was there praying. They didn't get to partake like, like Zachariah got to go in. They were just outside praying. They had no idea about what was, what was going to occur with Zechariah and this, this, this presence and Gabriel appearing to him and all these different things. They were just simply being faithful. And I'll ask you as, as we close, there's a lot of stuff in this world that you might not ever understand. There are things going on in your life that probably aren't perfect. No one's life is. I just ask that whatever it is, that you make it your ambition, your goal, your absolute mission to simply stay faithful to God, no matter what else is going around, no matter what is happening in your life, 
Because God is God. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our service. And he loves you. He desires to have that relationship with you. And you have no idea what he's going to do in your life. Maybe for years. But he can and will use you for his kingdom if you're willing to stay faithful. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to quit. It's so easy to take our eyes off you and put them elsewhere. It's so easy to look at the worst in our lives instead of the best. Father, I just pray that as we dig into your word and look at this amazing miracle of the birth of Jesus, that we're reminded of how difficult it can be, but at the same time, how wonderful it can be for those who are just simply faithful. We love you and praise your name. Amen.